Sunday morning, 104.5 FM, 1440 AM, WAJR. This portion sponsored by the West Virginia University chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and their website, WVUFCA.org, as we approach the season of, uh, well, the season is important for a lot of reasons, but it's a gift-giving season. And if you like what you've heard through the weeks and through the months and through the years from the FCA and you like their approach, they uh, certainly, certainly could use your financial support and every little bit helps. WVUFCA.org. Campus Director Kirby Myers with us on this Sunday. Good morning. Good morning. I love how you do that unprovoked. Like, I don't <laughs> ask you to, to uh, but that is an important part of our ministry. Um, Teresa and I are, are missionaries to the WVU campus. You know, I think sometimes we think of missionaries being international, but there are domestic missionaries as well, and and uh, God has called us to this campus to to reach coaches and athletes with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and it does take funding to do that. Well, I spent two terms on the board, so <laughs> it's been a while, but yeah. I know uh, I know how. And that has not that changed. So. That's that's the lifeblood. It really I mean, is, honestly. Yeah. Well, the lifeblood is the gospel. This is the means for you to present it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's Sunday morning. We're going to Sunday school. Yes, we are. Thank you, Kyle. Well, good morning to you. Back to the Gospel of John today and looking at this fantastic passage in John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible nearby, I would encourage you to to open that and look at this passage with me together as we look again today at the holiness of the Son of God. So this is part two of the message from last time. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22 And let me read that for us this morning. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So we continue our study of the Gospel of John today, and in this Gospel, we will observe eight signs or eight miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, The Gospel of John contains much less of those miracles than we see in what are called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in the Gospel of John, we will see Jesus heal a royal official son. We will see him heal a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. We will see him feed the 5,000 men. We'll talk about how many that was in total. We will see him walk on the water and calm the storm. We'll see him heal a blind man from birth. We'll see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. 
and we will see Jesus cause the disciples to bring in a large amount of fish while they were fishing. So last week we began looking at this passage, focusing on the holiness of Jesus and the sinlessness of Jesus. And if you didn't listen to that one, I would really encourage you to listen to that. It's such an important truth and foundational doctrine for our faith that we believe that Jesus was a sinless man. But here in verse 13, if we can pick it up today, we read that the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover like he had done with his family when he was 12 years old that we read of in the Gospels as recorded in the Gospel of Luke and like he would have done every year. Uh, this This was a standard annual procedure for every devout Jewish male who was over the age of 12 years old. John will mention two other Passovers in his Gospel in John chapter 6 and John chapter 11. Many of you, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you grew up in the church, if you went to Sunday school, you will remember the Passover event from the book of Exodus. And so the Passover feast commemorated the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verses 23 to 27. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem here, as the law would command him to do. He's about 30 years old. And as we saw last week, Jesus was perfect and holy and sinless and he was obedient to the law in our place. Verses 14 to 15. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I mentioned to you last week that the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include a cleansing of the temple in their Gospels, and they place this at the end of Jesus' ministry during his Passion Week, his final week on the earth. But I believe that the one that John gives us here takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So these are two separate events. Now, you can disagree with me if you want to, but in your disagreement, you would be wrong. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But I think John is putting this at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus after his first miracle in Cana of Galilee because this is when it took place. John is writing his gospel in a chronological order. He is placing this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry after he performs his first miracle in Cana, as I said, to begin his public ministry. So what is going on here? 
Why is the temple full of oxen and sheep and doves? Why were they being sold there? Why were there money changers there? What's going on? When I was a pastor in Indiana from 2002 to 2014, we had a little book table in the foyer of our church. It was always my goal as a pastor to get good reading material into the hands of our people. Um, You know, you walk into a a secular bookstore and sometimes even into a Christian bookstore and buyer beware. I mean, there is some junk in the religious section, in the spirituality section, uh, things that I would never recommend to a growing Christian. And so we wanted to get good books in the hands of our people. And so I would often buy these books from Ligonier Ministries uh, Ligonier Ministries have this thing called Five Dollar Fridays, where they they sell books and DVDs and um, eBooks, things like that, for five dollars on Friday. It's a great deal, and they're still doing that today. Uh, they did that this on Good Friday just a few weeks ago, and um, so we would we would buy them for five dollars, and then we would sell them for twenty five. No, I'm just kidding. We sold them for five dollars. We did not require anyone to purchase those books. We weren't making a profit from selling them. We were actually taking a loss with shipping. But that was much different from what we see here in the temple in AD 27 or 28. I believe Jesus was angry, but again, I believe he was in complete control. I would call this sanctified rage. And in his anger, he did not sin. And as we talked about last week, this is of utmost importance. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry, it's actually a command there, but do not sin. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Anger can be good or bad depending on motive and purpose, and the anger that we see displayed by Jesus here is righteous indignation. It is anger at evil anger at sin and corruption, an anger that hates injustice and ungodliness. Jesus was angry at the injustice and ungodliness that he observed in the temple, but in his anger, he did not sin. He was in complete control. Jesus was definitely active here. He drove them out of the temple including the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. But he also spoke to them. In verse 16, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Jesus has used this phrase before, my father's house, to refer to the temple. And he did this about 18 years before. So if you can, go back one book to your left to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. We often read from Luke 2 around Christmas time as we read about the Christmas story, but I want you to look down to verses 41 to 48. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast, and as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. 
Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And then if you look at verses 49 to 51, he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he, which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So here in John chapter 2, Jesus says, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. There were obviously Jews present when he made this statement, Jews only, and there were Jews everywhere. But they must have been more focused on what Jesus was doing than what he was saying. It was as as if they missed him saying, Stop making my father's house a place of business. Because in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we read that for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He had healed a man on the Sabbath day. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, the disciples of Jesus were watching, and as I said last week, they had never seen Jesus like this before, and they will not see him like this again until the end of his earthly ministry, three years from now, when he does this again. And as they were watching, John tells us here that they remembered something. Verse 17 of John 2 his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is from David, found in Psalm 69, and I want you to listen to the context as I read. In Psalm 69, verses 1 to 9, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who know my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. O Lord God of hosts, may those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Well, zeal for the house of God did indeed consume Jesus. He was angry at the abuse, the injustice, and the ungodliness that he was observing. I think one question to stop and ask ourselves here would be this. 
does zeal for the house of God consume us? Does that consume us? Do we want the church to be a place where the gospel is presented and the glory of God is manifested and and we are there for his glory and not for our own entertainment? I think the American church today, you know, when I was a pastor in Indiana, I would often get these church flyers in my mailbox for local churches in in Marion County where we lived in Indiana. And, uh, you know, they were clever. They were pretty good at marketing, but I remember some of those. I used to keep them. I had a file of them, and I would share them when I would teach our, our uh, welcome class or our new members class at our church just to kind of contrast our church with other churches in our area. But I remember some of those would say, like, rethink church, or we're redefining church, or this is not your grandmother's church. And you know what? I would see those flyers, and there was never a need or a desire for me to visit any of those churches. But if those mailers represent who they are, those churches had nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the gospel. And their churches look nothing like the New Testament church that we see in Scripture, that we find in the inerrant Word of God. And that should make us angry. That should make us have zeal for Christ and zeal for his church and what the church is really supposed to look like and what the church is really to be doing. In the next verse, we see proof here that Jesus was in control as we see him engaged in conversation with some Jews that were there in the temple. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, after he's overturned these tables and driven the money changers out, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, these were most likely the temple authorities who come to Jesus and ask him this question. Notice here there is no rebuke for what he has just done. No one is chastening him. No one is trying to arrest him. The authorities simply want to know this. What sign do you show us that you have the authority to do what you just did here in the temple? What sign do you do or what miracle will you perform? They have completely missed his rebuke that they have made the Father's house a place of business. Jesus could have said to them, hey, did you not hear what I did in Cana? Did you not hear the story of the man turning the water into wine? (laughs) That was me. Who does that? Or he could have said, do you not know that the Apostle John will only include eight signs in the gospel that he writes? No. Look at what he says instead. In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. There was a comedian a few years ago. I think he's still doing comedy, but his name's Bill Ingvall, and he used to have this bit where he would say, here's your sign. And Jesus here says, here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. For the first time in his ministry, Jesus here predicts his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. But the Jews who were questioning him did not get this either. Look at their response to when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? 
This is a reference, their answer is a reference to Herod the Great's temple, which was not yet complete. The work had begun around 20 BC and would not be completed until around AD 64. It was destroyed in AD 70 by Nero. Construction had gone on for 46 years at the time that Jesus says this. Jesus was clearly speaking about the temple of his body, as John tells us here in verse 21. But the Jews would use this statement against Jesus in just a few years after he is arrested and brought to trial. In Matthew 26, verses 59 to 61, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. In Mark fourteen fifty-seven to 59, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was there testimony consistent. Those who were present at the crucifixion mocked Jesus as they repeated this charge as Jesus hung on the cross, Matthew 27, 39-40. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark fifteen twenty nine to thirty, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, "Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." But as John tells us here, Jesus was speaking about his body. He is predicting his death and his resurrection from the dead, and the Jews did not understand this. The temple officials did not understand this, and the disciples did not understand this, at least not yet, but they would. Look at what John tells us in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, fast forward three years, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Well, let me ask you a question as we come to a close. What do you make of Jesus' statement, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? This was clearly a reference to his death and his resurrection. The apostle John tells us that Jesus died and on the third day he rose from the dead. And so do the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so do the apostles and all of the writers of the New Testament. Paul tells the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There he was referring to the Old Testament as he was writing, but we have the Old Testament and the New Testament that both affirm that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And so my question for all of you today would be this. Have you believed the scriptures? He also tells us, tells us that he was seen by the 12. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by James, his half-brother. 
He was seen by the Apostle Paul himself, the one who was once persecuting Christians and having them put to death. He was seen by over 500 brethren or believers at one time, many of them who were still alive as Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthian church. Friends, there is overwhelming evidence that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead. And this is foundational to Christianity. This is absolutely essential to our faith. For if Christ is not raised, then we will not be raised. We are still in our sins. And Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15 that if that is true, we are of all men most to be pitied. My friends, as you're listening today, either on this radio program or listening to this podcast, Jesus really died. The temple, his body, was destroyed. It was beaten and bruised and scourged for you and for me. Jesus cried out on, from the cross, it is finished. One Greek word, the word tetelestai, I always tell people this is one Greek word you should learn, tetelestai, because it means it is finished. And Jesus cried out from the cross to the Lord, to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Bible tells us that he gave up the ghost, that he gave up his spirit, that Jesus really died. The soldier came along, the Roman centurion, and pierced him with his sword. And we read there from Luke that blood and water flowed. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV or not even on this radio show, but that is a proof that Jesus was dead. That's a medical condition showing that he was gone. And then we read that Jesus was taken down off of the cross and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day after his death, his body could not be found. It was not stolen, as some tried to say, that the body of Jesus was stolen by his disciples. The women and the disciples did not get, they were not mistaken. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. Jesus had really risen from the dead. And he showed himself to his disciples and many others over a 40-day period. And then it was time for Jesus to go away. And the Bible says that he ascended back to the Father, that he is now seated at God's right hand, a place reserved for God alone. It's a place of authority. And from that place, from the right hand of God, Jesus intercedes for us. And it's the place where he is preparing a place for us, where we will live with him forever. So the question as we, as we conclude is this, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was risen from the dead, and that he is coming again? It makes a difference, and it is a difference between life and death, and a difference between heaven and hell. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word again as we look at this passage, looking at the holiness of Jesus and why he came to the temple and, and drove out these money changers and overturned their tables and, and was so concerned, had such a zeal for his father's house. And Lord, may we have a similar zeal for your church that we would love the things that you love, that we would hate the things that you love, or the things that you hate. Lord, that we would be jealous for your glory and for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
sharing the victory on WAJR, part of our Sunday morning broadcasting. And you've been listening to Kirby Myers, campus director of the WVU FCA. And again, you can learn more about the organization. You can uh, contribute financially. You can listen to uh, previous radio shows all at that website, WVU FCA, as we're uh, into the month of December. And of course, it is the season of giving. So uh, you might want to, as you're putting your contributions down, uh, part of the uh, the spiritual uh, gifts in terms of uh, the things that you support, WVUFCA. Uh, if it's on that list, you can uh, find a way to do it at WVUFCA.org. Thanks for coming in. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And, uh, again, you've been listening to Sunday Morning. This portion sponsored by the WVUFCA, 104.5 FM, 1440 AM, WAJR.